Well, good morning, church. Uh, the story today is a very intriguing and interesting story. It's a story in the, about Israel in the time of war. It's a story with great uh, intrigue and spy. Uh, it is an interesting, interesting story. Uh, but above all, this story today teaches us something about God and about faith. And it teaches something very potent about faith. And so before I start this morning, I just want to pray and I want to ask God to bless this time and to bless our hearts uh, that we might uh, take and heed his word. So go to the Lord with me in prayer. Lord God, I pray that my voice would be your voice and that Lord, if for any reason there's anything that I say that would not be of you, that you would help people to quickly discard it. But Lord, whatever I say that is from you, I pray that you would help us to take it to heart and to draw nearer to you in our faith and in every way. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. In late August 2005, Hurricane Katrina roared through the Gulf of Mexico as a Category 5 hurricane and devastated the city of New Orleans and the surrounding areas. It is now tied with Hurricane Harvey as the costliest hurricane on record doing upwards of $125 billion in damage. Flooding caused mostly by the result of fatal engineering flaws around the city of New Orleans precipitated most of the laws of lives. Approximately 80% of the city as well as the surrounding areas were inundated with floodwaters. The scale of the disaster was so devastating that it created a massive rescue effort of citizens who were stranded in some cases on top of their houses and in their roofs for weeks. At the time, I was in Dallas, safe and secure in my world, watching the calamity on the television, maybe like many of you. Little did I know that God would call me to pastor in a church just north of New Orleans in March of 2006 and ask me, alongside of thousands of volunteers, to play a part in the recovery efforts. It was there that I came to work alongside and befriend Dr. Michael Sprague, who is the senior pastor of the church. At the time, in his book, Disaster, Michael states that he was reflecting and meditating on one of C.S. Lewis's statements. The man who has God in everything has no more than the man who has God and nothing. Did you catch that? The man who has God in everything has no more than the man who has God and nothing. It certainly made sense in my head, Michael states, but pre-Katrina, it was simply a theoretical statement that seemed plausible. After Katrina... I continued to meditate on the C.S. Lewis statement, and the truth moved from my head to my heart. Michael's heart translated it, You never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And then you discover that he's all you ever need. Michael was used by God to help pull off one of the biggest recovery efforts in our nation, housing, feeding, and sending over 20 thousand volunteers to New Orleans and the surrounding areas. Michael states, the situation was so impossible that we who could easily 
trust to our own strength, wit, and resourcefulness, we're finally forced to trust God totally. What a novel idea to trust God. The God who provides manna from heaven and raises the dead. Being a desperate man, I decided to bet the farm on God. When's the last time you bet the farm on God? Have you ever decided to go all in by placing your faith wholeheartedly and completely on God? I'm not talking about having enough faith that somehow God grants you, like some genie in a bottle, your every wish and desire. I'm talking about coming to the point in your life where you realize that you are desperate and that your desperate faith results in the complete surrender to the will and the plan of God. Whether we realize it or not, we are all desperate. We are desperate to experience peace with God. We are desperate to reconcile with our Creator. We are desperate because without forgiveness, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are desperate because without Him, we are children of wrath, just like everyone else. We are desperate just like the outsider because without Christ, we are the outsider. Well, today, we're going to meet a person whose desperate faith resulted in, in complete surrender to the plan of God. A person who, in spite of her deficiencies, was not only saved, but became a heroine of the faith. The great-grandmother of King David, an ancestor in the line of Jesus, Her name is Rahab, the prostitute. How could a Canaanite prostitute end up in the line of Jesus? How could her lies and schemes against her own people write her in history as one of the faithful of Hebrews chapter 11? How could Rahab end up alongside Abraham's Sarah? How could a sex worker in one of the most vile cities in the ancient world come to such fortunes Rahab's story is a potent reminder of the kind of faith that pleases God and today we're going to see that God delights in desperate faith because desperate faith produces good works the book of Joshua is a book that's all about faith Its theological themes demonstrate the importance of Israel's faith within the covenant God gave Moses. The faith of Israel would be demonstrated as Joshua and his armies lived out the command to be strong and courageous, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. In Joshua, we see the victories of faith in God who would go before Israel and fight for them. And the circumstances through which Israel's faith play out are the entrance into and the establishment of the nation in the land of promise. The land was a covenant promise to Abraham. It was a gift from God. Israel did nothing to deserve it. They were not owed it. They had no claim on it except that God gave it to them. The fact that the land was a gift is so important that it is mentioned six times in Joshua chapter 1. And in Joshua chapter 2, our chapter today, it's mentioned three more times. 
Israel's blessing was never about being deserving. It was always about God's gift. And so if you have your Bibles today, turn with me to Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And verse 1 says this. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and rested there. Now we don't know all the reasons why two spies from Israel landed in the home of a prostitute. Some would say it's for the obvious. Others would say she wasn't even a prostitute. Instead, she was an innkeeper and a flax farmer. And while it may be interesting to dive into that detail in a study, the scripture doesn't take us there except to tell us and use the Hebrew word zona for her. Now, a zona was a person who sold themselves sexually for money an ordinary prostitute, as opposed to a temple prostitute. A temple prostitute was a person who was involved in cultic ritual, and they were a kadesha. They were involved specifically in the ritual to Asherah during these times, who is the ancient god of love and war. When Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament, the writers are quickly to prescribe this identity to her from the Greek using the word porne, which means prostitute. But the story tells us the reason the spies were there. It says that they came and rested there. Some have made much of this Hebrew term because here it simply means to lie down. But it can mean to lie down sexually. But the plain reading of the text and the word simply means to lay down to rest. And so we know that they ended up in her house to rest for the evening. And then in the process of that, their spy operation somehow went awry. Somebody other than Rahab saw them, identified them as Jews, and told the king that they were spying. And so the king sent word to Rahab asking her, to turn them in. Now you can imagine the panic. You're planning on going to bed for the night and two men show up needing a place to stay. You're not sure about them exactly, but you let them in to rest. A little bit afterwards, there's a knock on your door. You scurry to the roof and hide them under the flax branches that are drying out. Others must have seen them enter your house and who knows who will show up your door next. You answer the door and hear, turn the spies over. So you confirm you've seen them but don't know where they were from and send the agents on a wild goose chase out the gates and down the road all the way to Jordan River. When the gates were shut that night, you knew that they wouldn't be coming back in. So in order to protect the spies, Rahab creates a cover-up, deceives her king, and by doing so has turned her king, her people, and her land against her and she, them. Otherwise, the story would have told us how she cooperated. And as I'm reading this even now, all kinds of questions are popping off inside my head. Are they yours? One of those being, is there ever a time when it's okay to lie? The story is told of 
four high school boys who couldn't resist the temptation to skip morning classes. Each of them had been smitten with a bad case of spring fever. And so after lunch, they showed up at school and reported to the teacher that their car had a flat tire. Much to their relief, she just smiled and said, well, this morning you missed a quiz. And so take your seats, be sure you spread out and take your pencil and paper and get ready. Uh, Still smiling, she waited as they settled down and got ready for her questions. Then she said, first question, which tire was flat? (laughs) Lying seems to be a way of life for many people. We lie at the drop of a hat. The book, The Day America Told the Truth, says that 91% of those surveyed lie routinely about matters they consider trivial. And 36% lie about important matters. 86% regularly lie to parents. 75% lie to friends. 73% to siblings. And 69% of people lie to their spouses. Proverbs 12.12 says God hates lying lips, but delights in those who are truthful. So we know... We know from the scriptures that lying is not an acceptable way to live. And yet we've all lied. And most of us do lie from time to time. And so while scripture never affirms lying, it never affirms that lying would please God, for God hates laying lips. Instead, it affirms just the opposite. It does give us two examples where situational ethics and moral obligations seem to collide. The first one is in our text today. The second one is in Exodus 1, chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, when the king of Egypt demanded that the Hebrew wives kill all the newborn babies. The scripture says the midwives feared God and they did not do it. And so when the king came to the midwives and asked them why they didn't obey, they said that the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women and that they give birth before the midwife can get to them. And so they didn't kill the babies. And then it says that God was good to the midwives and that the people multiplied. But it also gives us the reason why God blessed it. It says because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Was there a higher moral law in effect than the king's command? Yes. Did their disobedience and lie achieve the plan of God to multiply Israel and Egypt? Yes, but it was their fear of God that pleased him. It was their fear that resulted in faith that led them to take the act of courage to resist the king. In our passage today, we see that Rahab's situation was unique. First of all, she feared God more than man. Uh, But secondly, she found herself in a desperate situation in a time of war. Was there a higher moral law in effect than the king's command? Yes, God was judging the Canaanites for their sin. Did her disobedience and lie achieve the plan of God? Yes, it did. But like the Hebrew midwives, she feared God. And that pleased him. Imagine yourself in Rahab's shoes for just a moment. Your city is going to be attacked and you're desperate to survive. Do you roll the dice to see if your people will win the battle and you will survive or you defect to the other side? As a prostitute, if you defect, you have nothing to lose. 
You're a marginalized member of society anyway, and you live in the most debauched and vile city in existence. You're an outsider even among your own people. Even the temple prostitutes gain more respect than you because they act in the name of the cult. But all of it, the prostitution, the cultic worship, the divining of spirits is getting to you. All you ever wanted is a husband and the security and safety of family. But somehow you, find, you found yourself owing money and you had to resort to prostitution along with your fabric business to survive and pay it back. You were forced to live in the city wall where a constant stream of strangers passed by and you would always be under your father's house, at least until marriage. But those prospects were annihilated when you chose to become a prostitute. He always wanted the best for you, your father. He wanted the best for you and your brothers and your sisters, but it just wasn't turning out. Life just wasn't turning out the way that you'd hoped. If only you could get out. You'd welcome so many traveling men. You'd heard the stories of a God whose power worked on behalf of his people, and so had your people, and they were terrified of Israel. Your king had already declared they are camped on the other side of the Jordan, and you heard all the towns talk, and you were destined for war. But somehow, somehow you believe the stories that this God named Yahweh is the one true God. You had seen the destruction that false gods in your society created, and you really believed in Yahweh. But you had never experienced him. Put yourself in her shoes for a moment. How would you act out that faith? The coast is clear, so you hurry to the rooftop and risk everything. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. And when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, who you utterly destroyed. When we heard these reports, our hearts melted and no courage remained in anyone any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above and on earth, below. The spies could hardly believe your words. Our hearts melted and no courage remained. Uh, they remembered Joshua's command, be strong and courageous. And yet with this information, it was like the people had already given up. God's works had struck fear, just as God had promised. But this woman was different. Yes, she was desperate. But she knew the land was a gift. And she had recalled God's great deeds on your behalf, the Red Sea and the Exodus. She even recalled the recent battle with Sihon and Og. And she recognized the truth about God, that he is God of heaven and earth. Still lying under the flax, the spies remembered the words passed down from Moses. Has a God ventured to go take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs, and by wonders? By war and by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm and with great terrors, just as the Lord God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? 
You were shown these things that you might know that the Lord, he is God, and that there is no other beside him. This prostitute, not only was she protecting us, but she was confessing Yahweh in the exact same fashion as we had learned to do when Moses led us. Know today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Deuteronomy 4.39. The men slowly and quietly emerged from out from under the flax branches. As they stood up, stood up and lay, looked at Rahab persuasively, she persuasively again and quietly made her request in the form of a covenantal agreement. Now then, she says, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brother and my sister's and all who belong to them, and save our lives from death. Swear to me by the Lord? We can't do that. You've dealt kindly. You want our pledge of truth? How can we display the Lord's kindness, his hesed, his loyal love toward the pagan that we are to kill? As the men stood there and looked, The Lord put great compassion in their hearts toward her. She had confessed Yahweh. We have to find a way to save her, they thought. But there must be some some conditions to this promise. Their wisdom warned as they looked ahead toward the coming battle. Our lives for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She led us downstairs to her window and lowered us to the ground saying, Go to the hill country and stay three days and then go your way. We remembered the exodus. How God promised not to slaughter anyone who painted the lamb's blood over the doorpost. And how the death angel came And would pass over all who were inside. What does she have that we could use as a signal that we might protect her? It's right in front of our eyes. The scarlet cord that she lowered us down the windows. We shall be exempt from this oath which you have made us swear. Unless when we come into the land you tie this scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. And gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all of your father's household. According to your words, so be it, Rahab answered. And she sent us away. As we departed, we looked back over our shoulders and we didn't see her any longer in the window. She had disappeared. But we looked back once again and we saw in the window the faith that she had had once again dawned on us. She tied the scarlet cord in the window. Rahab's faith culminated in obedient action. And that's what faith does. 
Rahab recalled God's great deeds. She recognized God is God and she risked everything. She obeyed the spies and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And she had gone all in, so to speak, with her heart and her mind and her actions. Rahab had just bet the farm on God. And God delighted in her desperate faith. And her faith produced good works. In his Desiring God article, Waiting for God Alone, John Bloom writes, To be brought to a place where God is our only real hope is a merciful experience. But I don't say that lightly. Because almost always, it's also a desperate experience. Some external circumstance or internal crisis forces us into a place where our other comforts and hopes are removed and fail us. In these moments, we keenly feel our weakness and vulnerability and usually long and plead with God for escape. But it is in these seasons that enduring faith is forged. And usually, in retrospect, such experiences, once we find out that God is really our only rock and that our only hope is in Him, these prove to be the sweetest in our lives. And it is in that way that we call them mercies. Seasons of desperation challenge our faith. And they train us to actually trust God. Rahab's only real hope was in God alone. Her confession and the resulting action she took as she lowered the scarlet thread in the window show us the authenticity of her desperate faith. This tainted woman's faith proved true over time as she lived in Israel, married Salmon, and conceived Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. This tainted woman ended up in the genealogy of Jesus along with several other tainted women whose reputation wasn't so hot. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing because all of our reputations are tainted. You see, the story of Rahab is really our story. We are all outsiders and every one of us are tainted. Rahab was destined for judgment as Israel entered the land and without Christ, we too are destined for wrath all the same. We are all the more desperate than we ever know or feel and we are desperately in need of a savior. And just as the land was a gift from God to Israel, so too our salvation in Christ is a gift from God. We've done nothing to earn it. We've done nothing to deserve it. There's nothing about us, absolutely nothing, that causes God somehow to give it to us except that he loves us and that he has chosen to lavish his love on us that we might produce good works for him. But this gift of God, it's not universally applied It's universally available, but given only to those who receive it. We understand this because John tells us this when he says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Just as Rahab had to exercise faith in Yahweh, 
so we too have to exercise faith and receive Christ by believing in his name. When Rahab hung the scarlet thread out her window, it was a sign of her faith that led to her salvation. And there's a scarlet thread that runs through the whole story of the Bible. It started when God gave Adam and Eve the skins to cover themselves by sacrificing the animal on their behalf. And it continues throughout the whole Old Testament. And that thread is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for the redemption of mankind. The blood of Christ runs through the whole Bible symbolically. And that scarlet thread runs all the way up to John the Baptist's declaration. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And to the foot of the cross where Jesus finally says, to tell us day, it is finished. Let us pray. Lord God, today, today we contemplate the foot of the cross. Lord, because that scarlet thread that runs throughout the whole scripture leads us right there. Lord, it leads us to the place where we must exercise faith that Jesus Christ either is who he said he is or he was the biggest liar and lunatic the world has ever known. But Lord, we know, we know that he is Lord. And so for us, for those of us today who claim him, let us renew our claim once again in him. And Lord, for those of us who may not know him, let us for the first time believe that Christ died for our sins in our place and was raised from the dead. The simple act of faith, of believing in his name, that we too might be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's at, the foot of, it's at the foot of the cross where we come to the communion table. The place where the scarlet thread has led us all along. And we are, we are given the opportunity to trust the promise of God. The place where every one of us are confronted with the fact that Jesus gave his life in our place. The place where as we contemplate his sacrifice, our sins condemn us. And we realize that we are the ones who put him there. But Jesus doesn't condemn us. He doesn't condemn us. He forgives us. And he frees us from sin and death. And cleanses us. From all unrighteousness. It is there at the foot of the cross where the scarlet thread has led us that we come to know that death is not the end. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.
I love the buts of Scripture, don't you? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And today, we celebrate God's gift of new life in Christ. So if you would, would you take your cups? And when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples eating the Passover meal, he took the bread. And as he took the bread, he broke it and he distributed it to each of them. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat. And after he had taken the bread and broke it and they had eaten it, he also took the cup. And he poured some for each of them and he distributed it. He said, this is my blood. The blood of forgiveness in my new covenant with you. Take and drink for the forgiveness of sins. And after they had taken the Passover meal, he said that they sung some hymns and went their way. Let us pray. Lord God, let us celebrate each of us in our hearts that at once we were desperate, but now, Lord, we are yours. Lord, at once we were, as Rahab was, destined for judgment, but now because of the covenant in your blood, we are destined for heaven. Thank you for eternal life in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.